ocean is for all of us. It inspires and provides life for creatures in and out of the water, so it's imperative to keep that precious resource as natural and functional as possible. At the forefront of that effort here along the South Coast is Channel Keeper. They're not the Coast Guard, but they are sort of an ocean police. My guest is the Executive Director, Ted Morton. Ted, I've admired your organization from afar ever since I moved here in 2015. I know you're fairly new with them, but why don't we start with a little history of what Channel Keepers is and how it came to be? Sure. Um, and first of all, thanks for the opportunity to talk today. Um, of course. This is, this is great. Uh, so Santa Barbara Channel Keeper originally started in 1999 as a project of the Environmental Defense Center, which is a very prominent organization here in town. In 2001, we um, became an independent organization. Um, our mission is a very bold one. It is to protect and restore the Santa Barbara Channel and its watersheds. Um, we focus primarily on water quality um, and uh, water quantity, and then also the aquatic habitat, the marine and coastal habitats that uh, depend upon clean and healthy water. We run a number of programs. Um, we run educational programs and citizen monitoring programs all the way up to advocacy and on occasion, we will file lawsuits using the provisions of uh, clean water legislation to require improvements in our water quality when, um, when polluters are failing to, to do the job. So it's, we run a big gamut. We've been around for a while. Um, we're still a relatively small organization. We have a large mandate um, in our mission, but it is a, a great organization with a great um, list of supporters and board members. And um, I joined in July, but we have a staff of six and two of them have been with the organization for well over 15 years. So we have a lot of experience in the community and doing this work. Wow, that's an excellent overview. And we're going to try to touch on each and everything that you mentioned right there. Uh, let's start the website, sbck.com, is outstanding. I can't say enough good things about it because it's simple, it's easy to use, and gets you right to the good info without a lot of clicking. So props on that. Thank you. Uh, I thought we'd bring folks up to date using the headings from that website as our guide. So as you were saying, under education, it says you're working to make the public more aware of the biggest threats to the Santa Barbara Channel. Now, some are obvious. You mentioned polluters, and there's oil, and there's all kinds of problems that are on the surface. But what are some of the threats people might not be aware of? Yeah, sure. So I'll pinpoint three. Um, so the first one is agricultural pollution. Um, I think sometimes the people who live in Santa Barbara and Carpinteria don't always recognize sort of how linked our watersheds are to agricultural lands. Um, maybe there's a better connection in the Carpinteria Valley than here in Santa Barbara. But agricultural pollution is um, sort of the remaining big pollution problem um, for, for waterways across the nation. And the Santa Barbara Channel um, has its own share of problems related to agricultural pollution. And the concern there is um, the overuse of nitrogen and pesticides on the irrigated lands. And so those pesticides and, and nitrogen um, or nutrients will run off those irrigated lands and enter local creeks. And then the local creeks will enter into the coastal marshes. Um, and this pollution in excessive levels can lead to um, harmful algal blooms or some dead zones, particularly in the summer. And of course, the pesticides uh, can affect and threaten wildlife. So that's one area that 
a lot of people don't always sort of pinpoint as an issue in the Santa Barbara region, um, which is addressing pollution from irrigated agricultural lands. Mm -hmm. Another one is uh, what is considered marine debris. And so these are items that are, um, you know, there can be abandoned boats out on the channel. But one one of the topics that we work on is uh, abandoned lobster traps. Mm. Uh, and so sometimes, um, you know, storms might knock off uh, lobster traps when they're set, uh, and then they'll eventually make their way to the beach. And these create hazards for marine wildlife and for people. So it's a, you know, it's a it's a big issue here on islands, but uh, on the islands, and then also in local local areas. And uh, we recently collaborated with um, some commercial fishermen to remove uh, 40 traps from Black Rock Beach up near Goleta on, uh, on a Saturday morning. So we uh, removed them from the sand and, and winched them and uh, put them on boats and, and carried them back to the harbor for um, either reuse or for disposal. And then the third one, which I think people get a, have, a, have a sense of, is plastic. Um, but it's also microplastics. It's like these really small, small items of plastic. Uh, and so we've worked with several other local conservation groups to enact city ordinances, including in Carpinteria, to ban single-use plastics and bags. But we also do a lot of cleanups, um, and we do collect a lot of uh, plastic, both sort of like those cups and straws, but also the, the very minute and microplastics as well. So that's that is an issue here, and it's an issue on the islands as well. Okay, well, the, the issue of single-use plastics is a worldwide crisis. I don't think it's uh, uh, too mild to use that word. Is that part of a larger issue of trash in general? People just don't, don't use the trash facilities we have available to us and just wind up, you know, for decades we've seen this where people just dump stuff by the side of the road or even in the ocean. Yeah, some of that is still, you know, uh, behavior of the citizens of not being careful with how they remove the, those those items and put them into the into the trash. And unfortunately, um, you know, there's a lot of that to clean up when we do um, street cleanups or beach cleanups. So yeah, it is a lot of it is changing behavior, um, making choices about how we use plastic. But then there are more things that we can be doing, and there there is on the um, the November ballot there will be an initiative for plastic waste reduction that will be really important and can really help set California continue to be at the the leading edge of um, efforts to to reduce plastic waste in the environment. And uh, look, you know, we would encourage your listeners to to investigate that even more um, and be be ready in November to um, to cast a vote so that we can do even more. Okay. Already we're into information I, I really didn't know, wasn't aware of, and, and spreading the word, uh, you know, agricultural pollution, never even thought of it. And, and when you get to the marine debris of the type you're describing, lobster traps and whatnot, and fishermen, it's basically food production. Uh, and that's an angle of it we, we seldom hear anything about. So that, that's a revelatory thing for me right there. Um, are, are there some areas of the channel that are at more risk than others? And I know the word jurisdiction might not apply, but what areas do you concentrate overall? We work from the Gaviota Coast all the way down to the Ventura River, and we work within the watersheds. So that's the area of the land that will drain naturally into the channel. So usually sort of like the tip of the mountains, right, mm -hmm. um, down to down to the shore. 
and um, then we work out to to the islands. So that's that's the area of focus that we have. And out on the channel, yeah, there are well, there are risks I would say that are spread out throughout the channel. So, as I mentioned before, you know, in the coastal areas, there the the greatest risk of pol- pollution is what comes from the land, um, whether that is you know sewage um, or oil residue and fecal matter from the storm drain system, um, or if it's nitrogen pollution from agricultural lands, but all of these things can lead to harmful algal blooms or closed beaches, um, you know, trash on, on the beach. And that's something that I think that, um, you know, over the past, you know, 30, 40 years, the general public has become very aware of, of, uh, of that connection with land and the, the ocean, you know, I think people know that whether they haven't heard the term, you know, the beach begins in our backyard. So what do we do on our land actually impacts um, the beach. And I think people are taking greater actions, making sure they're not dumping used oil down storm drains, for example. So there's been great behavior changes. There's also risk out in the channel. And a lot of that is, you know, industrial activities. So there still are about 20 platforms, oil platforms out there, and there's activity that continues to occur in their pipelines. And there's always a risk of, um, you know, oil spills from that kind of activity. Uh, You know, there's cargo traffic in the channel as well. And so the speed of the ships and the noise from the ships can affect marine mammals uh, and marine life. And, you know, the federal government is also beginning to examine whether to permit offshore fin fish aquaculture in, um, in the channel uh, as well. So there's some industrial activities that um, provides, you know, create some risk in the channel. And then on the islands, you know, those are remote, right? They're hard to get to, mm-hmm. but you still see the impacts of trash um, and uh, microplastics um, that arrive there from land and from sea. And, um, you know, these can accumulate over time because it's harder to organize cleanups of those beaches. And so um, there are a lot of materials that can sit there for a while and, and provide some harm to to the wildlife that depend upon those islands. Okay. Yeah, that's its own little area that needs its own special kind of care. Uh, and yeah. I'm glad that's under your purview. Now, speaking of which, and since we stopped down on it, uh, I'm wondering how much of a factor the oil industry really is. And, and you've mentioned it, that it has a definite impact. And in recent years, we've seen it can be a very negative impact. But there's natural seepage and there's oil from the platform operations. Um, what can you do about it? I mean, are you on the lookout for a, a, an anomaly or a problem that might show up, a slick that nobody's aware of? We do that in a couple of ways. Um, first of all, you know, after that, uh, the Refugio oil spill, we started up a tarball monitoring program. Mm. Where we're, you know, we, we we don't go out as often as we could because we just have staff limitations. But we survey uh, 14 beaches on a regular basis um, and take record of, you know, the what we see in terms of oil residue on the beaches, uh, and that way can note if there is, you know, something that's sort of out of the ordinary, you know, on a particular monitoring day we see a lot more um, in one particular area and that could be something that we would report to authorities for for for, for further investigation 
Um, we also do receive some phone calls every now and then when people uh, notice um, more oil that might be washing up and um, we, we will go out and we'll investigate and report what we find to, to the leading authorities as well. So we're on the lookout um, for that. And, you know, we also, you know, on the unfortunate event, if some, something catastrophic happens, um, you know, we're prepared to work with the community on the oil spill response um, that, is, that is required. But, you know, the, in, the other thing, in the, in the next um, several years, there's going to be an effort for uh, decommissioning is what it's called, those platforms that are no longer in use. And so, um, you know, it will be an interesting process to determine what is required to, to shut those down and, and uh, cap the wells out there um, to ensure that uh, nothing, nothing bad happens from our own activities. But anyway, that's, yeah, that's sort of what we're doing on oil and, and, and thinking about sort of is it natural or is it some kind of problem? Okay, and some of the decommissioning activities you referred to are already underway, as we know. Yes, that's right. My guest is Ted Morton, the executive director of Channel Keeper Santa Barbara, and we'll be back with more. There's a part of our world that we pay little attention to. Here, an ant drags a seed five times its own size, and a bee sips from a drop of dew. And down here, toxic chemicals and carcinogens are leaching into our environment. They come from objects that we look past every day. Littered cigarette butts. Let's stop the toxic litter. Learn more at RethinkButts.org. Brought to you by Legacy and Leave No Trace. It's something to carp about. We are with Channel Keeper Santa Barbara about the effort to keep the ocean clear and clean for everyone and everything that needs it. And my guest is Ted Morton, the executive director. Now, something cool I saw on the website was the marine conservation curriculum. Tell us about that. Yeah, so a few years ago, um, our education director uh, worked with a local teacher to develop a, a special marine conservation curriculum that meets the science standards of California. And they have developed lessons about marine protected areas, um, data analysis, including you know every opportunity we can to get a, a group of kids out on in a creek or on the beach um, doing some water quality monitoring and just sort of letting them know what that's all about. We, we do. Um, we um, will also look at invertebrates and, um, and, and marine life as well as part of the, the data analysis. And then um, we'll also look at uh, the kelp forest. So it's, it was just an, it was an effort to really create a special, um, a special, lesson series on um, the marine environment and that we that we could um, share with uh, the local students. And that's one aspect of our educational activities. We do a lot more since uh, 2005. We've educated 36,000 local students wow. in, in classroom lessons or in the past two years on Zoom lessons and we couldn't be in the classrooms. But we also really strive to incorporate a on the water or in the creek um, experience mm -hmm. with the students as well. So it's not just sitting in the classroom, but getting them outside and, um, and appreciating the environment and sort of how science is really important to, to protecting um, the marine environment. And we're really excited because this summer is 
the first summer in two years when we really feel comfortable that we can do a sort of a full suite of our summer activities. And next week, we're going to, we're very excited that we're going to have some local students participating in some activities on our, our boat. We have a 31 foot retrofitted lobster boat that, uh, that we take out and um, we're able to take out a few um, school kids uh, and we'll take them to a kelp forest and they participate in a live dive aboard the channel keeper boat. We have divers that go out and sort of uh, through, through some video share what they see underwater with the kids on the boat. And, you know, the great thing is that for some of these students, um, we, we really try to uh, provide this for uh, students who are lower income. And so for many of them, this is their first opportunity to be on a boat and to see their hometown from a totally different perspective. And um, it's really cool. And we're very, we're very excited to, um, to get that program underway in the next few weeks. Very exciting indeed. And talk about a perfect segue from education into the next heading there, field work. Uh, you just described some of it. You, you guys aren't just waiting around for reports to come in. You're actively out there in the channel patrolling, maybe generating your own reports. Yeah, we do. Um, so I'll just start off by talking about uh, some of the ways that we use our boat. So as most of your listeners will know, um, the cruise ships returned to Santa Barbara this spring mm-hmm. after uh, being um, away for two years. And so we use our boat to, when we can, when conditions allow and staff are available, we'll take our boat out and um, meet and greet the cruise ships as they're entering Santa Barbara. Um, In order to come into Santa Barbara, the cruise ship captains sign a voluntary declaration that they're not going to dump untreated sewage or gray water from showers and kitchens um, into the channel 12 miles off of shore. And so we'll go out and we will um, remind them of their commitment and um, ask them that, you know, are you complying with that? And then we'll we'll do some visual monitoring just to see if we see anything that would be out of the ordinary. So that's one way that we've used the boat. Um, we also use the boat to do what we what's a program called MPA Watch, and MPA stands for Marine Protected Areas. Um, these are areas along the coast that have been um, set aside for conservation purposes. There still are um, human activities that are allowed in most of them. But um, we will take our boat um, and uh, go up the coast where there's some of these coastal MPAs and just keep track of uh, what human activities that we do see. And if we do see any kind of illegal activities, I mean, there are some there are restrictions for commercial fishing um, in these uh, in these areas. We'll remind them of those prohibitions, remind the boat owners of those prohibitions. And that's also, there's another component of the MPA Watch program, which involves uh, volunteers who will do shore-based monitoring of the coastal marine protected areas and sort of keep track of what they see. It's like, okay, there's a surfer, there's a swimmer, there are people walking on the beach um, and um, just sort of collecting data about um, how the marine protected areas are are being used. And then the third one that I'll just touch on quickly is um, stream team. Um, And so there are 
streams. We've done this in Ventura. We do it in Goleta. We've done it in Carpinteria as well, uh, where we in the past have relied on uh, residents to volunteer to spend um, a day, one day a month, it's just like a half a day a month, going out and taking um, water quality samples in this, the same places. And we'll test for, for nitrogen and for bacteria levels and for you know, the level of oxygen that's in the water and the temperature. And uh, it's, one of the, it's a great program. It involves people who are really committed about the, their creeks. Um, we've unfortunately had to, to reduce our activities there because of COVID over the last two years and are trying to figure out a way to, to revise that, those, that program. But one way that we have been doing it in recent years is working very closely with students at Kate School um, to, to keep up with our regular sampling of the, uh, the creeks in the Carpinteria area. Okay, and I, I want to touch on more uh, locally, of course, since this is something to carp about. But uh, first, let me just pause. Um, I had no idea you were doing that deal with the cruise ships. And that's its own little mini controversy in Santa Barbara. You know, on the one hand, they bring people who spend money on State Street, and it's good for the economy. On the other hand, I have heard backlash from people that think that they pollute, and uh, there's a downside to it. You guys are kind of like the unsung heroes. I had no idea you were doing that. That's a very badly needed thing. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, again, it's something that we would like to do more, um, but you know, it's it requires two people on staff, wait, you know, being at the dock at five a.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, to go out and greet the ships as they come in, and you know, really, this this past season, the marine advisories were <laughs> there were a lot of marine advisories, marine craft advisories, and bad weather. So, you know, we we don't go out and put our staff at risk. Um, we we abide by sort of the the recommendations from the um, from the weather forecast, but yeah, you know we think it's important to remind the ships about their commitments. And the other thing that's happened since the arrival of this is the Santa Barbara Harbor Commission. Uh, they've created an, an ad hoc committee to take a closer look at cruise ships in Santa Barbara, and they haven't like released the details of what um, what that committee charge will be. But we're really hoping that it will involve the full suite of um, community members and gathering thoughts about, you know, the environmental, the economic, you know, the, the social impacts and benefits of, of cruise ships in Santa Barbara. And um, maybe think through, rethink sort of what the cruise ship program should be as it moves forward. That's very encouraging indeed. Uh, you're one of the leading nonprofits on the coast. Where does the money actually come from? Well, we're really fortunate that we've got a great base of support from individuals in our region. Um, the majority of our revenue comes from individual donations. Uh, we also receive support from charitable foundations, and on occasion, we'll receive some grants from government agencies to do uh, to do some of our work. So those two are sort of the leading pots along with an annual fundraiser that we do in the spring, which is called the Blue Water Ball. Unfortunately, due to COVID, uh, we haven't held this event since 2019. Um, We've been really fortunate, though, that our fantastic supporters uh, have recognized that and um, have really stepped up to help us meet the loss of the revenue associated with that event. But we're hoping and planning to, um, to have the Blue Water Ball in 2023. Very cool. We're with Ted Morton, the executive director of Channel Keeper, and we'll be back with more. 
Whoa. The moment my son saw a redwood tree. It's huge! Is the moment I knew that for him. You can't even see the top of that thing. Even the sky has no limit. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. Your moment is out there. Find it at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Something to carp about, and we're with Ted Morton, the executive director of Channel Keepers out of Santa Barbara. Ted, you touched on it earlier. Can you tell us what's on the agenda with regard to Carpinteria? You had mentioned work with the Kate School to do some monitoring. Each section of beach along the coast has its own unique features and issues, and CARP is no exception. So we have a stream team monitoring program that uh, we work with students at the Kate School, um, and they have been assessing the, the health of local creeks in Carpinteria. Um, they do testing at Santa Monica Creek. Carpinteria Creek and Arroyo Paradon. And this, again, it's a, an opportunity for us to gather information about the quality of those creeks. Um, we have data that goes back over time so we can see if there's sort of spikes that might suggest that there, there are problems and we need to look at it more closely. But again, this is another opportunity to provide high school students with hands-on experience and testing out um, monitoring protocols. And then the other thing too, we I, I'll just tell a little story about something that happened in Carpinteria uh, in 2021. We received a complaint about a um, agricultural wastewater discharge into the salt marsh. Mm-hmm. Um, citizens had been reporting that there was this uh, flow of water that was coming from the site, and it was flowing near the homes at the Sandpiper Mobile Home Park. Um, and this was an area where children and pets played. Um, so we took samples of that water and we found that um, it was, or the discharge was highly contaminated with nitrates uh, pollution at over 13 times the state drinking water level. So we submitted those samples to the uh, local or the regional water quality board, and they followed up with that and um, issued notices of violation to the operator of that property. And last summer, we went back, um, and the, well, the, the, the regional board went back and performed samples and determined that um, the problem had been addressed. And we will go out on occasion, again, to just sort of test that area, to see if we see any discharge and, and take tests as well. But that's sort of a nutshell is sort of a carpentry example, but it's sort of a nutshell of a lot of the things that, well, how we, how we do our work. A lot of times it's citizens report of something that looks suspicious to them. And then we'll go out and take samples and investigate and then, you know, work with the, with the people who've reported the incident, but then also reported up to the appropriate agencies so that they can investigate further and, and see if uh, corrective action is needed. Okay. Now, the salt marsh is under the jurisdiction of the Santa Barbara County Land Trust, and that brings to mind the question, uh, no small part of your resources have to be used uh, in maintaining relationships with the local governments and their agencies. Yes, that's right. We're talking about from Ventura all the way out to Gaviota, basically. That's right. There are a lot of different government agencies that we, uh, that we work with, that we, um, we follow their, the agenda of their meetings. I mean, it's the Regional Water Quality Control Board. It's the county commission, it's the cities, it's Santa Barbara, Goleta, Carpinteria, and Ventura. Um, 
And then, you know, there are also some, uh, you know, ad hoc committees as well that are addressing certain issues. Yeah, so we have a small staff, um, but there's a lot of things to cover. The one great thing about this community, though, is that there are a lot of engaged and dedicated individuals who track these th who track these items of particular interest very closely. And then there's also really great other conservation organizations. Um, and so we'll we'll collaborate, we'll share information with one another so we can sort of spread out, you know, that um, advocacy work and that sort of monitoring what various uh, governmental agencies are doing to to make it a little bit more efficient and effective okay. for all of them. Okay. Well, we've dived into the next heading on the on the website there, the advocacy part of the formula. Now, that would seem to come naturally because that allows you to use the information you've gathered to do some real good, and we're talking about speaking to governments and government officials about your findings and what you're doing. But would you tell us what science-based uh, stakeholder advocacy is? That caught my attention. Sure. Uh, well, ChannelKeeper believes it's uh, critically important to ground our advocacy efforts in solid data and science. And that's why we, we have these programs for, for monitoring water quality. Uh, and we have these long time data sets that helps us see trends that uh, will be good, might be bad, but helps to inform what, what measures, what steps that we take with uh, governmental agencies or water quality agencies. We're also, we, we, we're collecting the data in the field and we're able to contribute to, to science um, when it's appropriate. We also use government data and we use you know, peer-reviewed science that comes from researchers as well to really inform um, the policy recommendations that, that we make. We really do think it's important that there's, our, our recommendations are, are linked very closely with, with solid science and solid data. Okay. All right. Uh, that clears it up for me. And you bring it all home with enforcement, which would appear to be following through on the previous three, making sure that the laws and rules that protect the ocean and its wildlife are enforced. Exactly. You know, as I mentioned, we have this sort of spectrum of activities. We, we do education and water quality monitoring. We do uh, citizen volunteer cleanup programs. We do advocacy work. But when we're involved in an advocacy, we really try to reach a, a solution um, with the polluter or with the agency. But when that's not happening, um, we will use um, the provisions of the law that allow us to um, file lawsuits to enforce the law that way. And, you know, the Clean Water Act, the Federal Clean Water Act, which, by the way, turns 50 years old um, later this year, has a really good provision in it that allows citizens and citizen groups like Channel Keeper to file lawsuits to protect our waters. And this provision has been used by Channel Keeper, other organizations in California and throughout the U.S. to um, address many water quality issues and help make sure that we're constantly, you know, working to improve our clean water pollution laws. And, you know, I can give a quick example of in Ventura River, we've been involved for several years in efforts about the pumping of the river water from um, the city of Ventura. And in the past, the pumping, they've over pumped the water, particularly in the dry summer months and have created dry conditions 
under the lower reach of the Ventura River. Mm -hmm. So we have been um, engaged in various processes. We've been taking uh, data in the, the lower reaches of the river and the, uh, above the where the pumping occurs um, and looking at the flow of the river and sort of, you know, at what points does the flow, when the flow levels reach a certain level, it really sort of reaches the tipping point for the lower reach of the river and, and dries it up and makes it uninhabitable for critical wildlife. But then also that's a critical, um, you know, recreational area for many residents in Ventura that they don't have access to when there's not enough water there. So we've filed a lawsuit um, which has turned into a process to look at how water is used throughout the Ventura River. And um, we hope that we can get to a long time um, agreement that will really for the first time in California, look at you know, how much water is really needed for fish and wildlife and for recreational uses of, uh, of critical water waterways. Anyway, it's just sort of a, a little bit of an example of like data and advocacy and community engagement that, um, that eventually led to us feeling like we needed to file a lawsuit to get something done. And from that, um, there is this process involving the, the whole community, um, the whole watershed to, um, to really look at how, how water is, is used among the various users. You touched on it in a roundabout way, and it's kind of a broad question, so I hope you don't mind, but are there any controversies involved with your work? I'm wondering if people who don't have as high a regard for the environment as they should ever give you a bad time or challenge what you're doing for whatever reason. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think that the the community at large, they they think highly of the chan of Channel Keeper and of the work that we do. Um, I don't know if everybody knows sort of the full suite of everything that we do do. Um, but yeah, there are members of the community that um, don't appreciate what we do. You know, they're individuals that litigation is something that, you know, they feel like that's, uh, they don't feel comfortable supporting organizations that support litigation. Oh, I see. And, uh, but like I said, we, we treat it as sort of last resort. Um, when sort of a lot of our options have been exhausted and we're not getting, you know, satisfaction and, and we're not addressing the source of the pollution, um, then we feel like we have an obligation to, um, to take it to court to enforce the laws that have been established. Well, thank goodness uh, you're there for the, to make that correlation about pollution harming people. Uh, it seems yeah. like the people you're describing kind of have a disconnect on that. It's like, you know, that does actual harm. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, sometimes, um, you know, there are industries where we're, we're trying to get them to change their behaviors. So they're doing more to protect water quality, you know, using advanced technology. Um, and so, you know, sometimes those are detractors as well. My approach is I, I, I really try to be a collaborator, work with people, try to find solutions that that make sense and, and work well. Um, but then again, we have the law on our side and um, we're not, um, you know, we're willing to, to use the, the law as, as, as a tool to help improve the, the quality of the environment if, if necessary. Yours is a serious and sizable operation. Do you ever find yourself shorthanded? I have to imagine that during the pandemic, that was a factor. 
Yeah. So, you know, we have a substantial critical mission and we cover a lot of territory, again, from Gaviota Coast to Ventura River, all the way out to the channel and then all the way up the the watersheds um, up to the top of the mountains. You know, I'm very fortunate that I lead a team of uh, six full time, smart and dedicated staff. We have a 31 foot boat and we have a really great core of dedicated volunteers who help us out in many of our, our efforts. But you know, we can't be engaged in everything that we would like to be. And, you know, sometimes we have to make really difficult choices to say, yeah, this is a this is an issue, but we just don't have the capacity to to engage and do it well. And so we try, um, you know, to share as much information as we can to help others. And if in that situation, if we're not able to really leap in and help out, uh, but then again, we also collaborate with a lot of other conservation organizations to help um, to be more involved in a limited way if we can't be be fully involved. Yeah, so it is. Sometimes we feel like we just uh, we're not able to cover everything that we that we need to we need to cover. And the pandemic affected us, particularly with our with our educational programs, but then also our our volunteer cleanup programs we sort of shifted our voluntary cleanup programs um, in a way to uh, to just deal with the reality of COVID and the restrictions of public gatherings. But rather than doing large group cleanups, um, we decided to create what we call the Watershed Brigade, which is a group of volunteers who sign up and once a month agree to take a challenge and go out and uh, pick up trash or uh, pick up a particular type of trash and, um, and do it from sort of locations throughout the watershed. And it's been a great success. We started it in May of 2020. And since then, we've had 900 distinctive volunteers participate in the program. And um, about 13,000 pounds of trash have been removed from trails and streets and local creeks through that. So all of this happened before I arrived, but I'm always proud of the adaptive spirit of uh, our team to keep that volunteer service going, but in a different way. Um, and as things are changing, we're, we're, good, we're getting back into scheduling group cleanups, but not as, not as frequently as we did before. That's awesome news. All of that is just wonderful to hear. Uh, and you kind of answered my next question about how all of us ocean-loving citizens can get involved. The key word is volunteer. Yeah, there are ways to volunteer. You can go on our website, svck.org, and find ways that you can um, participate in our cleanup or be an MPA Watch volunteer. If people see pollution or something that's suspicious, there is a, a mechanism there for them to report that on our website. As people think about organizations that they um, would support and um, donate to, we would just hope that people would keep Channel Keeper in mind with the donation. Okay. Any events on the horizon besides the ball that you described that you're hoping for? So there are two volunteer events. Um, we're going to participate with, a lo- with uh, several other groups in a cleanup on July 5th. So this is sort of after the fireworks at the harbor um, to go out and just sort of clean up the uh, clean up the area where, yeah. where people have been congregating. So if you want to do that, look on our website and sign up for the Watershed Brigade 
And then we also participate in September. There is the Coastal Cleanup Day that's organized. And so we are captains at West Beach. And so we'll be organizing um, a cleanup of West Beach as part of that. But those are two volunteer events that are, are on the horizon that I thought I would share. All right. Uh, again, the website, sbck.com for Channel Keeper Santa Barbara. And it's been my pleasure to speak with the executive director, Ted Morton. Ted, can't thank you enough. And uh, best of luck with all of your efforts. Dennis, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Something to Carp About is now available wherever you get your podcasts, including Stitcher, Podomatic, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We're sponsored by Pacific Prairie Productions, specializing in radio syndication and podcast production. Call 805-500-3144. Talk to you next time. I'm Dennis Mitchell.